Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. So glad you could make it back here this week to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. The weatherman said, It's going to be nothing but blue skies and moderate temperatures for the next six days running. So what do I do? I run out, pop the top off my Jeep. I'm eagerly looking forward to riding around living the spirit of American freedom. Instead, what happens is that the weatherman is a dirty liar, liar pants on fire. And the biggest storm of the entire year hits and uh, I get caught right out there in it trying to put the top back on my Jeep. So what is our topic for today? Well, there are several topics that I've really been dying to address. Today I was hoping to talk about what dogs, yes, dogs, can teach us about emotional health. And that's going to be a really fun and enlightening subject to talk about, but it's going to have to wait until next week because uh, I just did not have time this week to really flush out that presentation. So tune in next week, hopefully for that. Also this week I was asked to address uh, splitting. I was asked to address artificial recovery and a few other topics. And so these are also subjects that we'll be discussing in the weeks to come. But because I've had my hands so full this week, there have been some really good conversations going on in my education group. I thought I'd share some of those with you, and we'll just do this like a question and answer session. Question one, what role, if any, does blaming others for our own mistakes take on in borderline personality disorder? Here's my answer. People who are emotionally unhealthy do often blame others inappropriately for what they've really brought on themselves. For example, I don't know if my brother specifically has borderline personality disorder or not, um, and I don't really care because the fact is that he's got his life and I've got my life, and honestly, I've got my hands full resolving my own issues. You know, even though I'm now emotionally uh, a healthy person, does not mean I'm perfect. There are things about my personality that uh, I would like to improve upon. So I've got plenty to focus on here with me. I don't have time to go around, you know, trying to live my brother's life for him. But I do know that he suffers from emotional unhealth. After all, he got the same emotional education I did from the same two emotional teachers 
And also, the patterns in his life are clear evidence of emotional unhealth. You know, uh, we don't have to typically wonder if a person is emotionally unhealthy. We just look at the patterns of their life, and uh, that tells us everything. But my brother cannot for the life of him see that he himself is the cause of most all of the hardships that he puts himself through. And why not? It's because he's too busy assigning blame to external things. And when I say external things, other people are included in external things. Other people are external things. Anything that's not within you is external. That includes relationships, it includes people, it includes things, it includes jobs, everything. So, not to point a finger or anything, but he's a, he's a prime example of this. Of blaming things that really are coming from he himself. And, you know, I also did this before my recovery. It was part of my rage at everybody and everything. I saw everybody and everything, everything else as being responsible for making my life harder. And really, it was just me making my life harder. Now, here's where it gets complicated. A lot of people, when you say blaming, uh, you know, the original question is, what role, if any, does blaming others for our own mistakes uh, take on in borderline personality disorder? When you say that word blaming, many people will confuse that term for simply holding people accountable. And guess what? Holding people accountable is something that is imperative for escaping emotional unhealth. So, for example, in order to recover from borderline personality disorder, it's imperative to be able to accurately look at the subtle abuse of your parents no matter how subtle it was, no matter how well-intentioned it was, and see the abuse for what it is. And then, not stop there, but to hold them accountable for what is abuse. Holding people accountable for real abuses against us is not blaming them. Instead, it's a necessary ingredient to restore in our inner harmony with the broader world, with reality. It involves very important broader issues. It's not simply, uh, you know, when I, when I talk to a lot of people, uh, I get this, the feeling that they believe that there is no point in going back there and holding our parents accountable for what happened 20 years ago. But you got to understand that there are broader issues at play. A lot of it has to do with how you view yourself, how you respect yourself, what you perceive as being permissible or acceptable or not. So, 
holding people accountable for real abuses against us. This is not blaming them. Instead, it's a necessary ingredient to restore in our inner harmony our perspectives against reality, aligning our inner perspectives with reality. It involves very important broader issues, such as restoring a proper attitude within ourselves for the importance of our own self-respect and dignity and how we should be our own greatest caretakers. Think about that. How can you view past abuse as being okay even when the people who committed those abuses have done nothing to demonstrate genuine remorse. And by the way, (laughs) saying I'm sorry is not a demonstration of genuine remorse. A demonstration of genuine remorse involves a change in behavior, doing things differently, making an effort to understand where the mistake was made, what type of thinking allowed them to behave that way in the first place. These sorts of things are demonstrations of genuine remorse. It requires proactive uh, effort on the part of the person who is genuinely sorry. If they're genuinely sorry, they won't just say, I'm sorry. They will be proactively involved in trying to get to the bottom of why they were able to do that in the first place. And then identifying those causes and fixing them. So, us, on the receiving end, as children, we don't tolerate abuse, even past abuse, as being acceptable. And when the people who committed those abuses in the past still live with the same attitudes that allowed them to abuse us as children in the first place, the only healthy course of action is to hold them accountable. Nothing less will lead you to your recovery. Why? Well, as I said, it's got to do with your perspective on what is acceptable behavior toward you and what is not acceptable behavior toward you. If you think about it, until now, You've lived with a distorted perspective of your worth, right? What you deserve. What your inherent rights are. What what the um, true nature of your inherent self is. And so you've seen things as being acceptable that were not acceptable. Now you're trying to get on the other side of that. Right? You're trying to get on the other side of that and view things with an accurate perspective. That's what emotional health is having an accurate perspective about the nature of our inherent worth, the inherent value of our feelings, and the, the inherent nature of them, an accurate perspective of the inherent nature of them. So, It doesn't matter if your parents committed these abuses in the past. 
they most likely still live with the same attitudes. And the only health of course, healthy course of action is to hold them accountable. And if you think about it, this is not just in the interest of our greatest long-term um, emotional well-being. This is also in the interest of their greatest long-term emotional well-being. When we love people, we hold them accountable for their failures and their, their serious errors. You know, I'm not talking about, well, you didn't put the toilet seat down. I'm talking about serious abuses. Child abuse is a serious abuse because people who suffer child abuse, they'll go on living with the effects of that for the rest of their lives. I mean, I personally have been to, through two failed marriages that could have been prevented if only I had been raised with an emotionally healthy education, which I was not. So failing to hold those accountable who have done us real harm is not loving for them, and it's definitely not loving toward ourselves. So that's why that question is complex. What role, if any, does blaming others for, own, for our own mistakes take on in borderline personality disorder? There's blaming people uh, inappropriately, and then there's simply holding people accountable. And I don't want anybody to confuse the two things. The first is non-constructive. It's going to prevent you from genuine recovery. The other one is imperative for recovery and should not be confused with simply blaming somebody for what is our own mistakes. Question two goes like this. Dear Brian, thank you for the work you're doing. I've listened to a couple of your podcasts, and shortly after, I listened to your podcast about love and relationships. I realized I would need to do more unlearning and feel a deeper love within myself. I was never diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, but some other mental health conditions. I don't know if the person is genuinely talking about mental health conditions or if she's talking about emotional health. But her question goes like this. Uh, I would like to know how one knows he is healthy enough to go have a committed romantic relationship. Does one just feel? How does it feel to be emotionally healthy? I'm blessed in many ways, but I've been single for 10 years, and I'd like to invite romance into my life and create a family of my own. You know... Um, romance is the spice of life, ain't it? I mean, the few things are as euphoric. <laughs> well, let's say it like this. Few legal things <laughs> are as euphoric and as exciting as uh, romantic love. It's just, it's just the best of life, Right? It's just, it's just beautiful. It really can turn your life around for a while, 
for a while. So there's nothing wrong with her asking this question or wondering about it. And uh, she's been single for 10 years. Um, obviously, this is a new follower of mine. She hasn't really heard <laughs> my in-depth commentary on these things. But here's my answer. When, when will you know that you're ready for a serious, healthy, romantic relationship? Very simple. This is not going to go on for 20 minutes. One knows that he or she is ready for a relationship when he or she does not need a relationship in order to feel whole. It's that simple. Right now, a lot of uh, emotionally unhealthy people feel like Without a relationship, they're incomplete. You know, and movies lead us along in this lie that without a relationship, you're incomplete. The reality is, when you are complete within yourself, then you know it's true. Then you know you're ready to go find a romantic relationship. When you don't need anybody else to make you feel complete, when you yourself are able to generate that sense of completeness and wholeness within yourself, for yourself, that is the time that you know that you're ready for a healthy relationship. But other people, um, you know, most people, Go about it the other way, don't they? Oh, I'm just half a person. Half a person, unless I can find somebody to complete me. Folks, uh, that is a Hollywood lie. That's a literature lie. That's a pop music lie. <laughs> Healthy relationships are not made of two half people. Healthy relationships are made by two Whole people, two people individually who are able to generate for themselves, within themselves, inner peace and contentment. Do you see how much better that is? Two people who individually are content and feel whole coming together. What do you get? You get a healthy relationship. On the other hand, what do you get when you got two people who cannot generate that for themselves within themselves? In other words, on their own, they feel disordered and like they're half a person. And so they're constantly searching for their other half. It's a beautiful term, the other half. As I've mentioned in the past, there's a lot of terminology that we use all the time, which uh, from a healthy perspective is, is okay to use. 
But when you're talking to people who are emotionally unhealthy, there's a lot of terminology that is not good to use because people take it literally. People who are emotionally unhealthy take it literally, and it's not literal. Two people coming together and becoming one flesh is not literal. <laughs> it's poetic. It's poetic. But do you see how if you're already emotionally unhealthy and you've already got distorted ideas about the, act, the real nature of things, this concept of two people coming together and becoming one flesh plays into those distorted concepts because they take it literally. It's the same thing with triggers. People hear about triggers and they buy into the idea that external things have power over what we think and feel and do. When that's bullshit, uh, that doesn't happen. That's not a real thing. So emotionally healthy people, when they're talking about triggers, there's nothing wrong with it because they understand that literally there's no such thing as triggers. It's simply a loose expression to describe a thing. Emotionally unhealthy people, they hear the word triggers, they hear people talking about triggers, and they assign what they are responsible for, what only they are responsible for, to external things. So it's the same thing with relationships. If you want to know if you're ready to be in a romantic relationship, a healthy romantic relationship, the answer is... If you don't need a romantic relationship, if you're perfectly content without one, then you're ready for a romantic relationship. Question three. Person says, was having a conversation with my friends, one who thinks her mom has borderline personality disorder, and who have dated two people who have borderline personality disorder, so I've seen it as close as anyone. And we're talking about whether borderline personality disorder is unique and its own entity, or is it just an extreme representation of issues all humans experience to one degree or another? So, did, did you get the point of the, I mean, did you get the primary question there? The primary question is, is borderline personality disorder not just symptoms that all of us deal with? Just an extreme, just taken to the extreme? Here's the answer. Imagine a room with two people. It can be men, it can be women, it can be a woman and a man. Doesn't matter. Imagine a room with two people. The first man or woman or whoever coughs. <coughs> coughs. The second man coughs the first man coughed because he has terminal lung cancer the second man coughed because he he inhaled a hair <laughs> there was a hair floating in the air and he <gasps> sucked it in in no way can we say that because both of these people coughed that the conditions that both of these people are dealing with are equal. Can we? 
The symptoms of emotional unhealth are only unhealthy because of their causes. The conditions provoking them. Healthy people behave in many of the same ways, but for different reasons, for healthy reasons. This is why I've long said that borderline personality disorder or any emotional disorder, emotional unhealth, is not defined by its symptoms. No, it's it's defined by its cause. As just a quick example, do emotionally healthy people get furious sometimes? Yes, they do. Do emotionally unhealthy people get furious sometimes? You know they do. So why is fury or anger unhealthy for one and not for the other? Well, it's not because of the fury or the anger in and of itself. It's because of the causes behind it. The causes for one are not the same causes for the other. I've used the example in the past of what if I'm at the park and uh, with my little girl and some adult man just walks up and kicks her. What is the appropriate justified emotion in that situation? Isn't it fury? Intense anger? What if I'm at the Piggly Wiggly store? It's it's a grocery store, for those of you who might not know. Uh, The Piggly Wiggly is a grocery store. So what if I'm at the Piggly Wiggly? And uh, the lady in front of me in line, is just she's just taking too long. Is fury, fury, the appropriate time? Or the appropriate circumstance? You know, no, it's not. What it comes down to is, where is the fury coming from? What is, or where is it originating? If I'm in the Piggly Wiggly, and the lady's taking too long in the grocery line, is my fury really coming from the fact that the woman in line has taken too long? No. The fury is really coming from my inaccurate perception of the experience. I'm viewing that as a personal affront against, against me, <laughs> which it's not. No matter who got behind that lady in line would be inconvenienced, right? So if I were to correct my perception of the experience, whatever fury I'm feeling would dissipate. It would go away. But back to the park and the man who has kicked my daughter. There is absolutely no accurate perception of that experience where my fury should go away. Because fury is exactly the correct thing for me to feel. So, 
fists are going to fly. <laughs> fists are going to fly in that situation, justifiably so. I'm going to hurt him. I'm going to put the hurts on that guy. So the main point is that too many people are focused on the good or bad, right or wrong, appropriateness or inappropriateness of things, of things, rather than the reasons behind those things, which is much more important. You know, your whole recovery depends on you studying the causes the causes of what you feel and the causes of what you do or don't do, not the things that you do in and of themselves. So the things that we do or don't do are useful in getting to the bottom of the causes. And that's how they play. That's how they play in. So again, the question was, People with borderline personality disorder do this, and emotionally healthy people also do this. So what's the difference? That's the difference. I've never, never argued that the things or the that the things people do is should be your focus, right? I've always argued that it's the causes, the the motivating force behind those things. All right, final question. This person says, after listening to Season 2, Episode 4 of The Last Symptom, Brian Barnett, you mentioned that people in your life did not extend you compassion in the same way you did to your friend. I believe you're saying that what was, at least partly, missing was some acknowledgement that you were acting out wasn't the, wasn't the Brian they knew. What I don't understand is if you've essentially had borderline personality disorder your whole life, then why would the Brian they knew be someone who would act in compassionate and seemingly emotionally healthy ways? Glad she brought this up. Incidentally, she's talking about the very previous episode to this one, if you want to go back and, and hear that. Here's my answer. When we talk about negative behaviors... Any of the negative behaviors of emotional unhealth or emotional disorder, what we're really talking about are compulsions. A compulsion is when the disorder takes control away from a person. I'll give you an example. Anger. Anger. You know, a lot of people who are emotionally unhealthy, they deal with uh, anger. Unhealthy anger. Inappropriate anger at the wrong times, at the drop of a hat. No matter how much they want to live life never losing their temper, they're never going to be able to do it as long as they're focused on the anger rather than the causes of the anger. So, as in the example I just gave, in other words, The individual cannot control the behavior no matter how hard he or she tries. It's always going to end up in failure because the causes behind it are something they're unaware of and have no way in that moment or in those moments of fully understanding. 
without understanding where that those things are coming from or what the true nature of it is, how can any person reasonably be expected to get it under control? They reasonably cannot. They need time to be able to do this, and it's not reasonable to think that they could that it can be done overnight. So when the effects of an emotional disorder accumulate into a full-blown crisis, these same types of compulsions become even more dramatic and more outrageous for a time. So in that last episode, when I was talking about the Brian they knew, what I was really talking about is my heart, you know, my inner self. Nobody who's a decent person who also has an emotional disorder goes around intentionally, intentionally mistreating those he or she cares about. The mistreatment is generally part of the compulsions involved with emotional unhealth. So for my wife, for example, in normal everyday life, she knew I was one person but that I behaved in ways that were not in my heart. And, you know, I use the example of struggling with a bad temper on purpose because uh, it was just one example. I hated my outbursts, but I was powerless over them. And why was I powerless over them? Because I never truly understood where they were originating from. My wife was able to see that my issues with anger were something that I hated. So, if there's an aspect about yourself that you just truly hate, does it really reflect your inner person? No. And it didn't in my case. It didn't reflect my heart or the person that I wanted to be. So once my crisis hit, and I call it a crisis, others might call it a breakdown, my compulsions became much more obnoxious and outrageous and dramatic. And suddenly the people around me were no longer willing to separate Brian, the Brian they knew, that is the person that I am inside, from my behaviors. Because of the dramatic nature of the behaviors and because well, let's be honest, because of the the pain that these individuals were suffering because of my behaviors, they now viewed those behaviors and me as one and the same thing. You know, those behaviors defined who I was as a person. So compassion in these cases is, despite your pain, being able to view one's behaviors and who that individual is as a person as separate things. The behaviors are this, and you know that that the individual is not that. That person is this. The two things are tied up together, for better or worse, at the moment. But this does not define that person, because that person rejects those behaviors, even though he or she is the one carrying them out. As I mentioned in uh, the last episode of this podcast, 
people do this all the time. I mean, they're willing to extend this compassion and understanding all the time for people who kill themselves, even if they've told 50 lies in the lead up to the suicide. They're willing to look at that and just let it all be forgiven. This was not my loved one, they'll say. He or she would not have ever done such a thing. Therefore, more must have been going on than I can currently understand. (laughs) But because a lot of um, the outrageous behaviors by people who have emotional unhealth like borderline personality disorder, because we don't end up dead from it, and because a lot of those behaviors are considered fun, uh, we have a lot, of, a lot harder time getting that same kind of compassion. And my point with the last episode, I don't know if I expressed it well enough, is that uh, what is more permanent than suicide? <laughs> That's where the hypocrisy is. Suicide is permanent. The causes for the suicide are the same causes for a person with borderline personality disorder who's uh, being unfaithful to his wife. But at least the wife has the possibility of regaining her husband in health. If he kills himself, does she still have that possibility? Mm -mm. Suicide is one of the most dramatic finalities, symptoms that could possibly exist from the same causes. But as uh, we've talked in this program, um, what defines emotional unhealth is not symptoms. It's causes. What defines emotional unhealth is not symptoms. It's causes. People are willing to extend compassion and understanding towards certain symptoms, but not other symptoms, even when the causes of both things are the same causes. That was my point with uh, last week's episode. So when a person looks at uh, a suicide and says, man, this wasn't my loved one, He would not have done such a thing. What are they doing? Well, very simply, they are separating the behavior from the individual. This is compassionate. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. They can hate what the person did and at the same time not hate the individual himself or herself. People do this very naturally for suicide, which, as I said, is permanent. And you lose that individual forever. But many times, they're not willing to do the same thing, extend the same compassion and understanding for offenses that are not permanent. Where you can actually regain that person back into your life if they do the work. It's very hypocritical, but it's also human nature, and I acknowledge that. 
And so this is what I would have liked to have gotten from those who cared about me. I didn't want them to uh, tolerate the behaviors. I didn't want them to forgive me overnight. But at the very least, it would have been nice if voluntarily, on their own, their, from their own willingness, their own natural willingness to make a distinction between me as a person and my behaviors in that relatively short window of time in my life. I mean, think about this. You know, I was married to my wife. Well, I was with my wife for about 10 years. Um, and all of these dramatic symptoms and behaviors, this, these outrageous behaviors, from my borderline personality disorder crisis, happened within two years. Two. So let's put it into context. Yes, they were bad things I did. I couldn't, I, there was no way for me to understand why I was being compelled to do them. But we were with each other for 10 years. And all of this took place within two years. So how can two years define me in the minds of people who knew me for 10 years? Does not the other eight years and all the good things I did and all of my good qualities I demonstrated during that time, should not any of that matter? It's not reasonable. It's not reasonable. It's understandable because of human nature. But it's at the same time, it's not reasonable. I don't look at myself now and go, well, those two years, that's who I am. No. No, there's nothing constructive about that. <laughs> I'm not still within my borderline personality disorder crisis. You know, I'm able to pull back and say, look, you know, in it was a bad time. But from that, I learned so many things. I'm a better person today because of it. For those of you who are going through, uh, you know, those sorts of things right now in your own lives, I know it seems bleak. I know everything seems bleak. Seems like it's always going to be that way, the way that you're experiencing right now. For those of you who are experiencing depression, I know that it seems like you're always going to feel the way you feel now. Put it into context. You know, put it into context. How old are you? In the grand scheme of things, if you've been depressed for two years or five years, is that really definitive of the greater picture of your entire life? No, it can't be. It can't be. So, you know, there's, I talk about putting things into perspective all the time, and there's so many angles we could take on that subject. There's one I haven't done yet until today. Put things into perspective that uh, all your failures, your most outrageous failures, have happened in a very, very relatively short period of time. They don't define your life. 
They can't define your life. Folks, I appreciate very much the time you've chosen to spend with me today. Let me remind you one last time to run over to thelastsymptom.com. Support my work if you're so inclined. It, uh, it, really, it really is helpful. We've reached the part of the program that I like to call the encouraging finale. I have an aunt who I've always been pretty close to who lives in Indiana, and her name is Rachel. When I was in my early 20s, Aunt Rachel called me up one day and said, Hey, Brian, come stay with us for a week. We'll have a good time. So I did. One day at the breakfast table, she and her husband said, Hey, do you like baseball? I said, sure, I do. They pointed out the window to their neighbor's house and they said, Those people back there are relatives of Pete Rose, one of the most famous baseball players of all time. They told me if you go back there with a baseball, they will have Pete Rose sign it for you. One day, I got up the nerve while my uncle and aunt were at work to go out and buy a baseball, and then I anxiously walked back, walked up to the door, and knocked on the door. answered the door, I said, hello, my aunt's your neighbor. And she says that you can get Pete Rose to sign my baseball. The neighbors seemed confused, so I repeated what my aunt and uncle had told me. Do you know what the neighbor finally said? She said, we have no idea what you're talking about, kid. I think your aunt is playing a joke on you. Can you believe that? Was I not the victim of the greatest practical joke of all time? Who comes up with that sort of thing? And my aunt and uncle invented that practical joke spontaneously over breakfast. Genius! Genius!